Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher Eric Schwitzgebel. Specialists in political philosophy were no more likely to vote than professors in other departments or than other professors. However, political science professors were more likely to vote. So it wasn't like it was just flat across the board. Political scientists were more likely to vote. But ethicists and political philosophers were no more likely to vote. If you like the show and want it to continue, do me a favor and write a kind review on iTunes or send the link to a friend. And now, my interview with Eric Schwitzgabel. Eric Schwitzgabel is a professor of philosophy at University of California, Riverside, and the co-author with Russell Hurlbert of Describing Inner Experience, Proponent Meets Skeptic, and also a forthcoming book, Perplexities of Consciousness, from MIT Press. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Luke. Eric, our knowledge of our own conscious experience is usually taken as the most solid knowledge that we have. You know, even when Descartes rejected all other knowledge as uncertain, he tried to build it all back again from the only certain foundation for knowledge he could find, his own conscious experience of his own thoughts. You know, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. But you don't think that our knowledge of our own conscious experience is as good as we think it is. But how could that be? What are you trying to say? <laughs> so one thing I want to give to Descartes is that there are self-fulfilling thoughts. Right? A self-fulfilling thought would be a thought the truth conditions of which were a subset of the existence conditions. Right? So you can't have a thought without a thinker. So if you have the thought there's a thinker, then that thought has to be true, right? Because it couldn't exist without what it asserts to exist. Mm. Right? Or kind of more mundane example, if you say aloud, I'm saying blue bob, then you can't be mistaken about that because the condition of your saying that very sentence is that you're saying blue bob, right? Or if you say this sentence has five words, that sentence is automatically true. If you're speaking in semaphore, which is a language that they use to communicate between ships, or a, not a language, but a, uh, a means of communication between ships where you hold flags, right? In, in, right. in semaphore, you say, I, I'm holding two flags, right? That's automatically true in semaphore, right? So you get these automatically true assertions or judgments, but they're kind of trivial. They don't have to be profound. And Descartes' assertion, I think, and his assertion, I am, seem like plausible candidates for necessarily true self-fulfilling conditions. Okay. So the place where I would challenge Descartes is when he moves from that, and he does this pretty swiftly and without really any justification, from saying that he also knows, with a similar kind of indubitable certainty, his sensory appearances, goes through a list, basically what we now would say is the stream of experience, of the contents of your stream of experience, right? And it's one thing to say, I know for sure that I'm thinking. And it's another thing to say that I know for sure that I'm having, say, a visual image of the Taj Mahal in which all the spires are simultaneously well-defined or something like that. Hmm. Okay. So there's a kind of slippage between these self-fulfilling sentences and these other 
assertions uh, that he thinks that we know indubitably about our stream of own, uh, our, our stream of our own experience. Well, let me ask you this then, because we might consider there are different steps into uncertainty. Like if I say I see a red rectangle, that seems less questionable than the claim I see a red book, because I might be looking at say just an image of a book on a screen that I think is a book or something like that. But it, would right. you would you want to even challenge the claim, I see a red rectangle? It's interesting that you suggest red rectangle <laughs> for two reasons. One is that there are two kinds of experiences that people who are optimists about our knowledge of our human experience mm-hmm. almost invariably start with. And one is experience of a, a foveally or centrally presented bright canonical color. Usually that color is red and canonical pain. These are two kinds of cases where it seems pretty intuitive that, wow, you know, if I think I'm having a visual experience of red, how could I be wrong about that? Or if I right. think I'm feeling, you know, pain in my toe, how could I be wrong about that? Maybe I don't even have a toe. Maybe a limb, my limb has been amputated or I'm mm-hmm. bringing a bat, but I still have this, this pain experience. How could I deny that? Right. Yeah. So that seems intuitive to people. So that's kind of the next step of the argument. I'll get to the rectangular bit in a minute. <laughs> and I guess what I want to say to that is that the consistency which with those examples are chosen is, I think, problematic because it suggests that we can use those as representative, as our kind of our inference base mm-hmm. or our induction base for reaching general conclusions about our stream of experience. I think if you start with other kinds of experiences, like as I did with the Taj Mahal, imagery experiences, then there's much less of this intuitive feeling of certainty right away. Right. So if you if you start by saying, okay, I'm having a visual experience of the Taj Mahal, right, or a visual imagery experience of the Taj Mahal, right, and you think about the properties that experience has, not just that it's of the Taj Mahal, but you know how clear it is, how well defined it is whether it's experienced as kind of flat like a picture versus having depth, mm-hmm. where it's experienced in egocentric space, if it makes sense to experience that, to attribute it in an egocentric location at all. Right? Like some people say, oh, when I experience visual imagery, it's like the visual imagery, visual images are inside my head or like they're in front of my forehead or in front of my eyes. Or some people say, well, it doesn't make sense to put them in egocentric space at all. Uh, some people think that images will tend to be relatively uncolored and undetailed until you kind of think and take some time to fill in the details. Others will say that they spring to mind instantly full of detail. Hmm. And while people might differ person to person in what their images are like, it's also possible, and I think there's empirical evidence for this, that people's reports about such basic structural features of their visual imagery might not be all that well correlated with the actual features of their visual imagery. And people, I think, don't feel the same kind of overwhelming confidence and indubitability in making claims of that sort that is evoked by examples like seeing red or feeling pain where both of these are kind of interpreted as in canonical conditions. Well, I can definitely see how seeing the Taj Mahal would be easier to question than seeing red or seeing pain. Um, For example, you could even have, you know, always thought that the Taj Mahal referred to 
what everyone else knows as the Eiffel Tower, and then you would just be confused, <laughs> and uh, right. you would be seeing the Eiffel Tower, but you would be thinking you're seeing the Taj Mahal. But what if we, shall we say, back up a step to those canonical examples that are simpler and seem more immediate? Would you question our experience of those? Like, would it be possible to be wrong about I'm experiencing pain, or would it be possible to be wrong to say I am appeared to by redness? I'll answer that, but first let me clarify. With the Taj Mahal example, I was not referring to the possibility of being mistaken about whether it's kind of really the Taj Mahal, mm -hmm. right? The kinds of mistakes I was thinking about were more mistakes, not about the content of it or what it refers to in the real world or what the proper label for it is, but rather the kind of phenomenal or experiential components of the imagery. Okay, like how clear it was, how what details were there. How much detail it has, right? Or how what its spatial properties are in egocentric space or mm -hmm. depth or something like that, right? So that's a different kind of thing to be mistaken about mm -hmm. than to be mistaken about, you know, whether it's the Taj Mahal versus the Eiffel Tower or something like that, right? But to go back to the the more favorite examples, seeing red and feeling pain, I guess I have a two-pronged response to that. And we haven't got back to the, the rectangularity yet either, but I have a two-pronged response to that, right? So one prong is to say, well, you're probably imagining canonical conditions. So for feeling pain, that would be, say, a severe pain that you're attending to closely, right? But there will be non-canonical conditions, milder pains that might be confused with, say, itches or tingles, right? You might not be right about that, it mm. seems, right? Or there are cases, say, um, in the heat of battle or on a football field where people get injured and deny they're hurt and maybe they don't feel pain or maybe they do. I don't think it, we should just take it for granted that when people say that they're not feeling pain in conditions of that sort, that it's true that they're not. So it might be possible, or I think it is possible, to at least bring into question the accuracy of people's judgments about feeling pain if you get away from the kind of simple canonical presentation. And similarly for having a visual experience of red. So one of the interesting things about vision is that our color receptors are pretty thin outside of a very narrow central area, about one to two degrees of visual arc, which is about the size of your thumbnail held at arm length. Arm's length, that's your foveal area. And outside of your foveal area, you don't actually perceive color very well. But people tend not to know this about themselves. They tend to think that they can perceive color pretty well outside the foveal area. And so they're surprised when you give them demonstrations of non-foveal color experience. So the great early introspective psychologist Titchener, he had this wonderful 1,600-page textbook in which he trained people to become better introspectives. <laughs> and one, we could talk about that later if you want. It's a really fascinating book. But one of the things that he does early, fairly early on in the book is he has people fixate on a particular point, fix their eyes on a particular point and hold their eyes still, and then take colored hearts from the periphery and and slowly move them in, and then have them report on what their color experience is as the cards come toward the center. And people find this very difficult and strange, right? And they don't feel very confident in their reports. And the point to emphasize here is not that 
they're just not confident about what color the card actually is. I mean, they're completely unconfident about that Mm -hmm. when it's far in the periphery. But they're also not confident about what their visual experience is of that card in this non-canonical condition when they can't rotate their eyes to look at it and put it in their foveal area, right? They've got some kind of vague, indeterminate experience of color that's kind of hard to grasp and get their mind around. So that would be a case where you've got color in non-canonical conditions that I think we can be mistaken about or at least feel the kind of feeling of confidence disappears. And to get to rectangularity, yeah. So that's another case where I think we get in trouble by focusing on canonical conditions, right? You're probably, when you said a red rectangle, you're probably thinking about it being presented square on, right? Perpendicular to the line of sight. Right. Right. So you rotate it back so that your line of sight is oblique upon it. And a lot of people will say that it looks like, well, if they have the geometrical concept, they might say uh, trapezoidal, right? Or it's easier to do it with a circle. Right, because more people are familiar with the concept of an oval or an ellipse. Right, if you take a penny, or and that's the more standard example here. Right, you take a penny and you look at it square on. People will say it looks circular. You rotate it back, and a lot of people will say that it starts to have an elliptical appearance or an oval type appearance. Right. Now it turns out that it's as from the cultural, the cross-cultural evidence that I've looked at so far, that that's pretty culturally contingent. And furthermore, it doesn't, if you try to generalize it, as a lot of philosophers have done, into a general statement about the experience of perspective, then you run into serious geometrical troubles, uh, almost, I would say, geometrical self-contradictions. So the way that people geometrically, people like Michael Pye, geometrically, have tried to account for this, what they claim is, elliptical appearance of the tilted coin is by saying the apparent shape is defined by the shape that the penny or other object would make if it were projected on a perpendicular plane intervening along the line of sight. Right. So if you were to hold up an invisible sheet of paper right, with a penny on the far side of it right, and then draw lines from the penny to the eyes, right, or cut out a little piece of the paper or cover over a little piece of the paper with in a, uh, with another piece of paper to perfectly occlude the object, right? That would be, in that intervening plane, that would be an ellipse, right? So that has been the typical way that people have tried to develop the geometry of apparent shape. But the problem with this is when it deals with objects that are off of the central line of sight, because they will cross that plane obliquely, which will stretch them out in whatever direction they are away from the central line of sight. When they cross that intervening plane, they'll be stretched out obliquely. But no one says that we experience objects off the central line of sight as obliquely stretched out. Right. What would make more sense would be projecting not onto a plane, but onto a sphere that's centered at the eye or both eyes. Right now you get trouble actually where exactly the sphere would be centered or whether you need two to account for the fact that you've got two eyes. Huh. Actually, it's a whole other mess of problems. And some people claim that everything that's outside of a certain area where the eyes converge is seen double, despite the fact that most people would deny that it's seen double. 
but so if you were to, anyway, if you were projected onto a sphere, then you would save, you wouldn't get the stretching on the outside, and you would save the claim that a lot of people also make, right, which is that apparent size is proportional to, um, to, uh, angle of occlusion, right, visual angle, right, visual angle is preserved in a spherical projection, not in a planar projection. This is just a fact of geometry. Right. But projection onto a sphere gives you not an ellipse, which is a planar figure, but it gives you a, a concave or convex, depending on your assumed perspective, ellipsoid. Right, And everything then would look as though it were kind of dented in or dented out. And there's, I think, no way, actually, to get this geometry to work. So this is kind of a complicated argument. <laughs> but I think the upshot is that the experience of apparent shape when it's non-canonically presented is not straightforward, and people will make assertions that are contestable about the apparent shape of objects. Mm-hmm. So, oh, and you also said it, yeah. it varied by culture. What did you mean by that? Right. Like people in some cultures, when you turn the penny slightly away from yourself, they don't see it becoming an ellipse? Right. So this, the claim that I made about it varying with culture is not based upon current anthropological studies, although I think that would be fascinating to do. As far as I know, no one's done them. It's based on the, my reading of um, philosophers and psychologists from different eras. So, so my theory is that part of the reason that we think that the penny looks elliptical is that we analogize visual experience to projective media, like photographs and movies and paintings, right? So if you were to present in a photograph or a movie or a painting an an obliquely viewed coin, it would be an ellipse on on those projective media, right? But there are there are at least two cultures or subcultures that used very different kinds of metaphors for talking about visual experience. One is ancient Greece, where the standard the standard metaphor was impression of uh, wax, uh, a wax a, a signet upon wax, and the other was Introspective psychology, circa 1900, where for binocular vision, the relevant media analogy was not standard flat projective media, but rather uh, stereoscopy, which is where you present two images taken at slightly different angles, each to uh, different eyes, somewhat like the mm-hmm. 3D movies that are now becoming popular. Mm-hmm. And if you look at philosophers and psychologists in those two eras, they do not tend to project to to describe visual experience as projectively distorted in the way that we now do. Hmm. So, what seems to us natural? One very, I think, one very interesting example of this is Sextus Empiricus, who is uh, an ancient Greek skeptic. He he has these long lists of how experience differs depending on your perspective. This is, this, these perspectival differences in experience are crucial to his skeptical arguments. And yet you never see him say things like, yeah, right, and of course, 
coins when they're viewed obliquely look like ellipses, and when they're viewed straight on look like circles, which is exactly the kind of thing that skeptic that uh, uh, Sextus would want to say, the kind of thing that he would say if it had ever occurred to him to say something, that, that that would be the case. Instead, if you look at ancient Greece, if you look at people like Epicurus, they say that our experiences, our visual appearances, are the same shape as the objects perceived. So I wonder if this is just an artifact of language, though, because I can uh-huh. imagine that, say, I, I look at a penny that is perpendicular to my line of sight, and then I turn it away from myself, and I could communicate to somebody else, oh, now it looks, um, or now the penny is an oval, because that's how it appears to me. But I could also right. choose to say, uh, let's just say I came upon a penny that was turned away from me slightly. Uh, I right. could just say, oh, look at that penny, the circular thing. Um, because right. I would just be incorporating that into my language because I know what a penny is and I know that it's circular if you look right. at it dead on. Um, and so this could really just be an artifact of our language and not uh, actually describing perceive, uh, perceptual differences. Um, right, so let me just just clarify that I don't think it's a perceptual difference. I think it's a difference in our judgments about our perceptual experiences um, and yeah. one in which probably the contemporary view is wrong. That's my inclination, right, just to be clear about that. So, but I agree that the Wait, crop so, cultural sorry, evidence... let me jump in here. So, um, yeah, okay. so what is the, could you sum up for us what the contemporary judgment about the perception is that you're saying should we should not be so certain about then? And take the penny, for example? That the tilted penny looks elliptical. And that there's a sense in which the tilted penny looks elliptical, right? A lot of people who say that will also say, but there's also a sense in which, of course, it looks circular. Mm-hmm. People like Ty and Noe and other people who, who say that the tilted penny looks elliptical also say that it looks circular. So it's sometimes called a dual aspect view, mm-hmm. right? So I would, I think the majority of people, when you ask them, and the majority of contemporary philosophers, uh, of perception will say that there is at least a sense in which the tilted penny looks elliptical. And that's what seems to me both cross-culturally variable or cross-culturally contingent, perhaps my conjecture is, based upon our tending to over-analogize visual experience to flat projective media like movies and photographs, mm. and second, geometrically problematic in the sense that it seems to involve this idea of project of the geometry of visual appearance being defined by projection onto an intervening plane, right, which then creates these problems when you get off the central line of sight, these geometrical problems. Hmm. And then, Eric, one of the chapters in your upcoming book, Perplexities of Consciousness, is hmm? Do Things Look Flat? What's that about? Is that similar to what we're talking well, that's about, about the penny? Yeah, yeah. That's what we've been talking about, right? So the... If things are, if the if visual appearances are defined by their projection upon an intervening plane, then there's a sense in which all, things should all look flat, right? And right. Locke, for example, explicitly says, and uh, Hume, maybe even more explicitly says, everything looks as though painted upon a plane surface. Right? That's Hume. That's what Hume says about visual experience. Locke says a similar thing, right? 
um, and other philosophers have said similar things, right? That our visual experience is of a flat plane, and then we infer three-dimensionality. But that is kind of a downstream cognitive act of some sort, right? It's not part of the experience itself that things have depth. Hmm. Yeah, and you can, like I'm thinking of uh, photographs that are taken with an extreme fisheye lens. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that looks different. And I say, oh, wow, the, you know, it doesn't look flat anymore. Now it looks all curved and weird. And I just, I refer <laughs> to my own normal visual experience as saying that things look flat. Right. Well, photographs like that are an interesting case, right? They bring out the fact, the geom- the problematic geometry of projective distortions, right? Because yeah. photographs got to be printed on planar surfaces. So that creates problems when you have wide angles, right? There's a reason that that wide angle photographs never look quite right. 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 As soon as you, because things will get stretched out in, uh, away from the central line, right? So you can deal with that by doing some crazy fisheye thing. <laughs> you can deal with that by taking multiple fo- photographs from slightly different perspectives and putting them next to each other, but they never quite fit quite right. Right. So that fact about photography, I think, just is one further illustration of the geometrical point. You know, Eric, I would imagine that to some degree the problems with memory have to enter into this discussion. And in particular, I'm thinking of a recent episode of one of my favorite podcasts, Radio Lab, where they uh-huh. had, uh, they, there's this particular thrill ride or something where they drop you or pull you backwards or something like that. And it's very yeah. fear inducing in a lot of people. And what people often say when they're in that kind of really, terrifying uh, or adrenaline rushing experience is that time seems to slow down and we, it, mm-hmm. you know, our experience of time changes. But then right. one way that they tested this, does our experience of time really slow down, is they, they gave these people a particular kind of watch and the watch, the, the numbers on the watch change too quickly to see in the normal experience of time. Um, but if our experience of time actually slows down, <laughs> then you would be able to read some of the numbers and report which stage the numbers were going through when you were going uh, through this well, traumatic experience. Uh, and it turns, I don't know that that necessarily follows, but... <laughs> well, and you can talk about that later, but um, yeah. the, when they tested that, people were definitely not able to read the numbers, even if they were looking right at the numbers. And right. uh, there's one guy, at least, who's theorizing that what's happening in these kinds of experiences is not that our experience of time during the event slows down, but that looking back on the event, we have uh, heightened awareness during these moments of adrenaline rush, and so there's more details in our in our picture and more details that are being stored in our memory. And so in our memory of the short event, we have more details to pull on, and so our memory of the event is, is uh, that time is kind of stretched out or more filled out or more detailed. Right. Um, and not that during the actual experience, time our experience of time actually slowed down at all. And so, if that's right. correct, it would be uh, it's very in- it would be a very interesting result because 
even looking back on something five seconds after it happened, our memory of how that was experienced would be wrong. Our, our memory right. corrupted our experience, our report of our experience in five seconds. Um, but right. you seem to disagree that this is going too quick, maybe. Um, so I'm not, I don't object to that theory. I think that's an interesting theory. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think it has been established, but I think it's suggestive and plausible. Um, but it gets to how hard it is to study consciousness. <laughs> right. Um, because people who want to defend the accuracy of self-reports of conscious experience have lots of tools that they can use to undermine particular experiments because particular experiments about consciousness have always in some ways come down to some combination of self-report and assumptions about the relationship between conscious experience and external behavior. And both of those things are somewhat loose. You can't really directly observe someone else's experience. Yeah. So someone might say, well, look, it slows, the experience slowed down, but that doesn't mean that my, that doesn't, it doesn't follow from that, that my perception of time became more accurate or that I was able to pick up more input from the external environment in a, mm-hmm. a smaller amount of time. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, analogize, analogize it to movie frames, right? The, Maybe you're just determined to be getting, I don't know how fast the movies go, 36, 36 frames per second or something? I think 24 right? Maybe. or 30, depending. <laughs> okay, well, you know, good. So let's uh, let's say it's 30, right? Maybe you're you're just, as it were, getting 30 frames a second, right? But for you, the second stretches out, right? So you're not getting any more input about the external world that right. you can report on, right? right? But it subje- still could be subject- subjectively stretched. So... I'm not saying that that's what I think is the case, but I'm just saying that that seems like a readily available objection to this experiment. Hmm. So, I mean, not that it's a, not that it's a bad experiment. I think it's kind of cool, but the the problem is with I, I, in consciousness studies, what tends to happen, I think, is any single experiment you're going to have objections like that that are available to people who want to save the accuracy of self-report. Mm-hmm. And it's only by a wide variety of evidence that all seems to point in the same direction. You get a convergence of ex- uh, evidence, and the best explanation then might seem to be, well, maybe people really are wrong. But one experiment would hardly ever show mm-hmm. anything. Yeah. Well, Eric, another chapter in your upcoming book, Perplexities of Consciousness, is do you constantly experience your feet in your shoes? Uh, That's pretty interesting to think about. What is it that you think about that? Your feet in your shoes, the weight of the shirt on your back, the Mm -hmm. humming of the refrigerator in the background, the rim of your eyeglasses, if you wear eyeglasses. You're always getting sensory input from those things. Mm-hmm. But you're rarely attending to those things. And then there's this kind of question, which is, okay, well, I'm not attending to them, but do I still experience them in some kind of peripheral way? Right? Are they still are they part of my phenomenology, part of my stream of experience, part of what it's like to be me? There are roughly, uh, you know, to kind of sketch it out quickly, a little too simply, there are two basic views. Right? One is, 
what I call a sparse or a thin view on which our experience is really very thin, right? We only experience basically what we're attending to, right? So if you are attending to driving on the road, the radio might be on. You're not paying any attention to it. You're not actually experiencing it at all, and you won't be experiencing the uh, pressure of the seat against your back. If, mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you're attending, say, if you're listening to music and thinking about what you're going to be doing later that day at work, right? your eyes might be open, but you might not be having any visual experience at all. Hmm. So that would be a thin view. You only experience one or a few things at a time. And it seems to you, according to the thin view, it seems to you, or the sparse view, it seems to you that you experience more than one thing at a time or that you have constant experience of your feet and your shoes because of what sometimes gets called the refrigerator light error. So imagine a five-year-old or a three-year-old right, opening the fridge and seeing the lights on and closing the fridge and saying, oh, I wonder if that light is still on in there. Opens it again. Oh, yeah, the light's still on. And then concluding that the fridge light is always on. Yeah. Right. So likewise, Whenever you think about whether you're experiencing your feet in your shoes, that creates the experience of your feet in your shoes. Right. But that doesn't mean you had it before. So then you come, there's this kind of illusion that you constantly experience your feet in your shoes. And you constantly hear the hum of the refrigerator. And so that would be, how on earth would yeah. we test that? That's the problem. <laughs> that, well, yes, this gets back how to you what I was saying inside before, the fridge when it's it? closed. <laughs> All right, so... Yeah, this is just finished thought the uh before getting to the the testing part, right? So the just to be explicit about it, the abundant view or the rich view says, no, we do have constant experience of all these things, right? So those are two opposing opposing views. And then if you ask people as carefully as I can ask them, it's a little conceptually complicated, so I don't know exactly whether we're talking sometimes we might be talking past each other, but um but as as far as I can tell when you ask people, it splits at least the people I've asked, split about 50-50 between being attracted to abundant views or sparse views of experience, right? So, and they almost always think it's just completely obvious. Hmm. Yeah. Right, and they and they can't really understand why anyone would think otherwise. And these are radically different views yeah. of the stream of experience, right? I mean, if you think about it, right, on one view, we hardly have any experience at all. We've got very little experience, right? On the other view... Our experience is completely rich and full of detail all the time, right? These are radically different views of the stream of experience. Yeah. And if you're at all attracted to thinking that we're really good judges of our stream of experience, then it seems like, wow, you know, it should be just completely obvious, which is right. But I think it's not obvious, right? People who are attracted to the abundant view might be making the refrigerator light error, right? That means that you can't trust concurrent introspection to address the question. You have to do something like retrospection. This is maybe the best way to try to test this view, is to, to ask people, okay, half a second ago, were you experiencing your feet in your shoes? Hmm. Then they'll be reflecting on a moment that was, as it were, before the refrigerator door got open. Now, the problem with that is, well, let's say they say, yeah, I was experiencing it. You could worry, if you have a sparse view, that, well, really they're remembering something about the environment, not remembering something about their experience, and they're confusing those two. Or maybe, really, they're creating the experience now, 
But that doesn't mean they experienced it a moment ago. And there's some sort of temporal illusion involved. Yeah. Well, people who are attracted to the abundant view can discount reports of lack of experience by saying, well, maybe it didn't get into memory. There's all this evidence now from change blindness studies and other kinds of studies that there's lots of stuff in our environment that we can respond to and detect but fail to remember, even like right. a split second later. Right. Right. So that might be the case, too, with our experience. You might really be having an experience of your feet in your shoes, but then one second later when you reflect on it, you've already forgotten it. Right. It was never loaded even into short-term memory. Like, for example, if you're, if you're walking across the lawn and there's, a, say, a flower in your way and you don't want to step on it, there will be – I don't even know if this one's been done, but just to illustrate the point, um, you can show somebody a video afterwards of them walking across the lawn and they slightly adjust their step to miss the flower. But you ask mm-hmm. them right before showing the video, did you adjust your step to, to miss the flower? And they'll say, you know, no, what, I don't know. What are you talking about? Right. <laughs> yeah, that seems very plausible. I don't know about that particular example. That sounds just like the right kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so it seems like the best way to do this is by immediate retrospection, because concurrent introspection is going to be corrupted by the introspective act, which might create the target experience. You want to do it with immediate retrospection. And the best way to do immediate retrospection is to release people into their ordinary environments with beepers. And at least this is the kind of seems like the best way to me, right? Give them beepers. Say, okay, the beep's going to go off, you know, on average once every half hour or something like that, right? Fairly long intervals. You just do your normal stuff. And when the beep goes off, think about the last undisturbed moment right before that beep. And tell me, were you having visual experience at that moment? Were you having tactile experience? Were you having an experience of your feet and your shoes? Right, different subjects might get different requests along these lines, right? So one subject, that subject's only job might be, when the beep goes off, was I having experience, a tactile experience in my left foot? Hmm. So I did this. I sent people out into the environment and got completely, you know, different reports, <laughs> divergent reports for everyone, from everyone, which I interpret fairly skeptically in light of the objections that I just gave. But I don't think that there's a better methodology for addressing this question out there or at least there's not in the uh, short to medium term. So yeah. you might think, okay, well, could we just measure people's brains? But the problem is we don't know what brain activity correlates with the stream of experience Yeah. until we have a theory, and there are very different theories. So there are some theories on which experience is rich and some on which it's thin. Right? In order to interpret the brain activity, you have to, in advance, have chosen one of those theories Right, but those theories seem unjustified until after you've already settled the sparse versus abundant question. So yeah. there's a kind of fairly tight, I think, and problematic theoretical circle in trying to address it by say neurological measures. Same with simple report measures, right? So if you can ask a question, say a multiple choice question of someone, right? About something that was going on in their peripheral vision. Right. Let's say they get it wrong, let's say they get it right. How do you interpret that? Do you interpret that as showing that they had or lacked the an experience in that part of their visual field, well, in order to interpret it that way, you have to have a theory of the relationship between consciousness and report and memory, and that theory is already going to build into it presuppositions about the sparse versus abundant mm-hmm. question. So in the book, actually, I turn this into an argument against general theories, any any general theory of consciousness, 
that's on the market today by saying, look, all these general theories have to assume an answer to the sparse versus abundant question. But there's no way to justify one or the other answer. There doesn't seem to be any good methodological way to justify uh, choosing one versus the other. So therefore, none of these theories could be adequately justified. They're going to have built in from the start a contentious assumption about the sparse versus, uh, sparseness or abundance or maybe moderateness of uh, the stream of experience. So it sounds like you think it'll be very difficult for us to answer these questions very well until we've made a lot more progress in cognitive neuroscience. Right. So sometimes I'm, I'm tempted to a pessimism that says, well, this is just irresolvable. We'll never solve it. Right. But I am also uh, humbled by the, by the success of science and in solving all kinds of questions that one might antecedently have thought would be unsolvable. So I don't want to express pessimism about the long-term future possibility of solving this, right? But in the short to medium term, it seems to me like this is pretty hopeless. Hmm. Well, Eric, I'd like to ask you about your book with Russ Hurlbert, Describing Inner Experience, Proponent Meets Mm -hmm. Skeptic. That book has a really interesting structure. You asked a woman called Melanie to describe her conscious experience, and then you and Russ asked her to clarify, and then you know you argued with each other, and you put that into a book. Um, yeah. <laughs> how did that book come about, and, and what were some of the most interesting results of that exercise for you? Yeah, that book was a lot of fun. So uh, Russ and I met at a conference in Tucson uh, this Toward a Science of Consciousness conference, which is held every every even numbered year in Tucson. I forget what year we met. Maybe it was 2000, maybe 2002. And uh, both Russ and I, we, what we we share a skepticism about the accuracy of ordinary reports about the stream of conscious experience. But Russ thought he had this great method for answering these questions. That is basically giving people beepers, as I just talked about with my sparse versus abundance study, mm-hmm. giving people beepers, releasing them into their ordinary environment, having the beep go off, they reflect on what happened at the last undisturbed moment before the beep, and then he interviews them about that moment and tries to get at the truth of it. He said this is a he thinks this is, you know, a really good way of finding about finding out about people's stream of experience, a much better way than the other ways that psychologists and philosophers have been using. And I have been, as we've been talking about, I'm fairly skeptical about the accuracy of people's reports in general. And, you know, I thought, well, I don't know if this, if Russ's method is going to be any better. (laughs) So uh, we argued about it for a while and uh, I decided to be a subject of Russ's. So he beeped me. And we argued about that for a while, right? <laughs> um, and then we decided, hey, well, I was playing this dual role, right? Both as the subject yeah. of the experiment and as an interpreter or a skeptic. And that seemed to be kind of creating problems for our conversation. So we decided it would be interesting to get someone else to be our subject. And then we could interview her in whatever way we wanted and see to what extent we agreed or disagreed. So... The way this this book is structured is we kind of lay out our initial views in the opening chapters, and then we present transcripts of our edited transcripts, and we leave out some of the less interesting beeps, <laughs> edited transcripts of our interviews with 
uh, this subject where we kind of try to get at the truth about her experience, argue with each other, and then we've added these side boxes where we continue our arguments and discussions and connect them to existing literature and historical literature and philosophy and psychology. And then we have concluding chapters where we kind of, uh, each written, what, one by me, well, two by me actually, and one by Russ, where we kind of express our, uh, take on what happened. And I think the book is interesting in a couple ways. One way it's interesting is that I don't think there has ever been as in-depth a study of a single person's stream of conscious experience as this, right? To the extent yeah. that you think the reports have merit, you're getting a close look at one particular individual's stream of experience, 17 randomly selected moments of a single individual's stream of experience, kind of looked at in fairly a detailed way by two people with very different perspectives uh, and yeah. a lot of knowledge of the literature. So that's, I think, interesting. And then, you know, the discussion between us, I hope, is interesting. We ended up agreeing about a few basic things, right? So neither of us is completely radical, is a completely radical booster or a completely radical skeptic, right? So Russ thinks that there are going to be, there's going to be a level of detail beyond which it makes sense to press people during these interviews. Um, and I think that if you're just asking about kind of really kind of gross, broad level questions that although I don't think we're perfect or immune to error by any or even close to that, right? I think that there's at least a legitimate default presupposition that the person is in the right ballpark, right? So if, if you beep someone and the person says, yeah, I was thinking about whether to, I was, uh, I was reading this novel and I had this image of fighter planes. That was one of uh, Melanie's beeps, right? I think, okay, right? Probably she did have an image of, of fighter planes. I don't see any particular reason to doubt that. Hmm. So in a way, we both agree that there's at least a preliminary supposition of accuracy about the general features of the experience and no presupposition of accuracy about details. But then the, then the question is, how much accuracy is there? How far can you push that? And I think you run out of accuracy pretty quickly, whereas Russ thinks you can go farther. And I think, and I think Russ to some extent is on board with this, that you start to run out of dependable accuracy before you get to a lot of the kinds of questions that philosophers tend to be, and very and theoretical psychologists tend to be very interested in and experience. Uh -huh. Right. So we beat Melanie, and then you want maybe we're interested in the sparse versus abundant question, right? So the first thing she says is, I had a visual experience. I had a visual imagery experience of of these fighter planes. Right. And then maybe she says one or other two, one or two other aspects of her experience. Then you ask a question like, well, were you having kind of visual sensory experience of the page? Right. I think already you've got beyond what she could probably accurately report. But that, of course, is a, uh, an, an interesting question theoretically for consciousness. So, um, or if you're interested in the structure of imagery, you can say, okay, how much detail was there in that image? Was it really detailed or was it really sketchy? And here Russ and I diverge a little bit. Russ thinks he, you can report that accurately, the subjects do report that accurately, but I'm inclined to think that 
by the time you reflect on that image that was present in your pristine experience before the beep occurred, you have elaborated that image, you have thought about it, and so you get this kind of refrigerator light error of creating sustaining mm-hmm. the image. You're not going to be able to keep track of what was really there before the beep versus what have you added now versus what features do you think images have because you subscribe to certain uh, implicit theories, or certain metaphors right. uh, about the nature of imagery, right? Like, again, I think some media metaphors are really are, are somewhat toxic here that we tend to think images have the same sorts of features that pictures have, like they're flat, like they're rich with detail. So, so if you're interested theoretically in that question about the presence of detail or determinacy or indeterminacy in imagery, right? Although you can probably get relatively good yes/no, was I having a visual image uh, at the center of my experience? Uh, what was the rough content of the image? Once you get beyond that to the more theoretically interesting questions, or what would the questions that tap into debates that that psychologists and philosophers have been having, you're getting beyond what that method can reliably uh, yield. Now, Eric, if we don't have as great a knowledge even of our own conscious phenomenal experience as we might naively thought we have, that would seem to be a big problem for foundationalism where you're trying to build up knowledge from your relatively certain knowledge of your phenomenal experience uh, or probably for any epistemological approach, what do you think are the consequences of these types of doubts for epistemology in general? Well, I'm inclined to think if I'm right about all this, <laughs> then that's very bad for a kind of traditional foundationalism on which our knowledge of the external world, which I mean, you know, kind of objects outside the body, maybe the uh, maybe the body itself, mm-hmm. is grounded on a prior knowledge of our ex- the experiences, the sensory experiences that we have of those objects. Right? Now, I don't think we know very well what our sensory experiences are. Uh, I think our knowledge of that is actually so poor that it could not serve as the basis for knowledge of the outside world. But I don't draw a skeptical conclusion from that. Instead, I'm inclined to say that we know our knowledge of the outside world still. We have uh, fairly good knowledge of the outside world. Nevertheless, it's better than our knowledge of the stream of experience. And in fact, our knowledge of the stream of experience is to a large extent, although not entirely, grounded in our knowledge of the outside world, right? So if I'm looking at a Kleenex box, I know darn well that there's a Kleenex box out there and that it's got white tissue sticking out of the top and that it is shaped a certain way, right? And on the basis of that knowledge of the outside world, or partly on, on the basis of that knowledge of the outside world, I reach conclusions about what my experience is, that I'm having a visual experience of whiteness, that I'm a, a visual experience of a certain sort of shape, although as we talked about with respect to the question about uh, projected distortions and whether things look flat, you know, what I say about my visual experience of this shape is somewhat uncertain and probably theoretically loaded and grounded in metaphors and assumptions. Right, so I know that box really well. I know that box just fine, and my, but I don't know my experience of it very well, and to the extent I do know my experience about it, it's largely based on my knowledge of the features of the outside box. So it's kind of like turning Descartes on his head, right? If Descartes is the traditional foundationalist who says our knowledge of the outside world, or Locke, is 
grounded in a prior knowledge of our stream of experience, what I want to say is almost the reverse of that. Our knowledge of the outside world is what we have reliably, dependably, and our knowledge of our stream of experience is considerably less certain and to a large extent, although not entirely grounded in the knowledge of the outside world. But how do you have knowledge of that box in the external world without having fairly decent knowledge of our immediate experience of the things in the outside world? I guess partly that comes down to what is knowledge, right? But you've got, say, light reflecting off the tissue box coming into my retina, causing certain things to happen in my brain that cause me to have, if we think of knowledge as dispositional, as most philosophers do, right? To know, to have knowledge is to be disposed to do certain things and say certain things and think certain things. The stimulation of my retina and the cognitive processing causes the existence, leads to the existence of that dispositional structure of which knowledge is constituted. Does it, why would there need to be some kind of appreciation of one's own experience in that causal flow. It's not even clear that there needs to be experience in that causal flow, right? Experience could be phenomenal. It could be something that happens after all that causation, right? But I'm not committed to that. But I am committed to saying that even if experience is kind of in some way happening in that causal flow leading to the existence of the knowledge structure, there's no I, I don't see any reason, and it seems to me like there's a good reason not to think that somewhere in that is an appreciation of the phenomenal qualities of the experience. But let's come at it from this way. So how how is it that you um, justly come to think that it's true that there's a Kleenex box on the table if your immediate awareness of the Kleenex box is um, not so reliable, whether that comes through somebody telling you in sound waves that there's a Kleenex box there, or from your perceiving it uh, visually, or from your tactile sense bumping into it and feeling the tissue and feeling the box. If these immediate uh, experiential phenomenal knowledge, um, if that phenomenal knowledge is not that reliable or that well described, uh, how is it that we're coming to the knowledge about the box in the external world? So here's one way that what I'm saying could be true, although I'm not committed to this being the way in which it's true, but it's maybe the simplest thing to state. Okay. So the Kleenex box causes the experience of a Kleenex box, and that experience causes, in fact, I think this isn't true, this is oversimplified and problematic in various ways, but just to show you a way in which what you're saying might not be right. Okay. <laughs> the Kleenex box causes the experience of the Kleenex box, and that experience causes the existence of a judgment. Ah, there's a Kleenex box there. Right? Kleenex box, experience, judgment. Notice that in that chain, there's no knowledge of the experience that I've postulated. Right? So the experience could still be epistemically important. I actually don't think it has to be, or maybe often even is, right? 
but it could be even if knowledge of the experience or an appreciation of the experience is not part of the epistemic story. Right, so you're giving knowledge in terms of like a reliabilist account or a, a causal account. The focus is on what is it that causes your knowledge of the Kleenex box and is that causal process reliable for, for getting at the truth? And you're going to say that the causal process of the photons hitting your eye and causing this certain judgment is fairly reliable and that's why we have knowledge of the Kleenex box, uh, and it doesn't matter whether or not we also have knowledge of our experience of the, you know, the, our phenomenal experience of the Kleenex box. Right, that's right. I'm I I am attracted to some version of reliabilism about knowledge, um, although the issues there are obviously complex. So I don't think what I said turns necessarily upon reliabilism, although um, I could perhaps be persuaded of that on further discussion, but. But the way that you articulate it is, I think, one way in which it could be false that our knowledge of the external world has to depend upon a prior knowledge of our experience. Right. Okay. Now, on another note, Eric, you've done some interesting research on the relation between moral reflection and moral behavior. Totally different topic, but I find it really interesting. And you asked right. the question, do moral philosophers act any better than the rest of us? Uh, right. which is a really interesting question. Um, what are the results so far? Right. So let me just give just a little more context on this before I talk about the results, right? So the fundamental question that I'm interested in is the relationship between moral reflection, especially kind of intellectual and philosophical moral reflection and moral behavior. And I was moved to this by thinking about the case of Police Battalion 101, uh, especially in Poland during the Holocaust. This has been vividly portrayed both by uh, Browning and by Goldhagen in important historical works. And the striking thing about this, and this fact is particularly brought out by Goldhagen, right, is that these were just ordinary Germans, unselected, drafted, had not had not volunteered to serve in the armed forces from Hamburg. They were given minimal training, shipped off to Poland, and their very first duty, I believe, was to go to a village and round up the men and kill all the women, children, and old people. And the... That's a really bad first day on the job. <laughs> right. And the major trap, or trap, who was the uh, leader of uh, uh, Police Battalion 101, said, hey, look, I know this is not a very pleasant job, if you don't feel up for it, you don't have to do it. If you want to volunteer not to do it, that's okay. I'll, you know, I'll assign you to other duties. And of the approximately 500 men in the battalion, 12 declined to volunteer to do it. 12, or, out 12 of declined 500. to do it. Uh, 500, right. And over the course of several months to a yearish, I forget exactly how long it was. I think it was a little over a year. These guys engaged in lots of genocidal activities of this sort. And there was only one person in the whole battalion who consistently refused to do it. This was a lieutenant, and he was not punished for doing so. In fact, he was tra he transferred to another unit and was promoted. And there was at one at least one point there was a call for people to transfer from this unit to I think it was a communications unit behind the lines, not dangerous combat duty, and two of the men applied to transfer. So it was not a coercive situation. It was a situation that people could have got out, 
These were unselected people, not particularly Nazified. Most of them were not members of the Nazi party. And, and they all, it seems, voluntarily, willingly, or at least with a fairly subtle force, went out and killed lots of Jewish people. And what I want to do is I want to say, I just, I find that so baffling, so mysterious. I think, like, I want to grab those guys by the shoulder and say, hey, wait, stop, think, really? You want to do this? Isn't this, isn't there something wrong about this? I, I feel like these guys ought to be able to think their way out of this. Yeah. To see, there ought to be something in us so that if we reflect, we get out of, we can escape from these kinds of cultural situations. We have some sort of inner resources that even if sometimes we get caught up in a situation, an immediate situation and act unreflectively badly, right? If we stop to reflect, and these guys had tons of time to stop and reflect, some of them went on furloughs, then we would get out of it. But it seems like in that case, it didn't work. And so that thinking about that kind of case, got me thinking about the relationship between moral reflection and moral behavior, hmm. right? To what extent can thinking about, especially philosophically and intellectually, thinking about what's right and wrong help you discover what's really right and wrong and lead you toward doing what's right? And it seemed to me like one way to start getting at this is to think about ethics professors, because if anyone is good at philosophical, intellectual reflection about moral issues, it ought to be ethics professors. And if anyone is kind of mm -hmm. prone to do it, it ought to be ethics professors. Yeah. Now, those are both empirical claims that could be challenged, but I think they're pretty plausible, right? Now, some people will say when I say that, they'll say, oh, but ethics professors, they only think about really abstract or weird cases, you know, like the trolley is running out of control and there are five people tied to the tracks and there's a sidetrack. And right? of course, that situation never arises in real life. Uh-huh. But I don't think that's psychologically realistic portrayal of ethics professors. I think most ethics professors, although they may be interested in problems like that, also are interested in kind of applied everyday life things like, mm -hmm. you know, how important is it to be honest? Do we have a moral duty to vote? Right? And they'll use yeah. their philosophical tools to try to address these questions. And if they do, and if they're good at it, then I wouldn't expect with any kind of perfection, right? But I expect at least on average some tendency to behave a little morally better. At least that's what I would have hoped. The fan of Mencius inside me, so that he's an ancient Chinese philosopher whom I, uh, I love. Uh, the fan of Mencius inside me thinks, yeah, you know, reflection, moral reflection, that's how you improve morally. Um, so anyway, as you said, I looked, I've been looking empirically at the moral behavior of ethics professors and, you know, it's, it's pretty bad news for the view that they behave better um, and so creates problems, although I don't think – I think there are various maneuvers you can do to get out of these problems. But at least it creates problems or explanatory challenges for people who would think that philosophical or intellectual moral reflection tends to improve moral behavior. Well, what are the tests that you did? I should say most of these things were done collaboratively with Josh Rust at Stetson University. This first one I was, was not, but all the rest were. So the first one I did was I just looked at the rates at which ethics books were missing from academic libraries compared to other philosophy books. <laughs> and um, I focused especially, I looked at a, a broad spectrum of books, but the most interesting subset of books that I looked at and where my, focus, my, my analysis really focused was on relatively obscure books, the kinds of books 
that it seems safe to assume will be checked out almost exclusively by advanced students and professors of philosophy. Yeah. And among those books, ethics books were about 50% more likely to be missing. This is more likely even to though, be missing. More likely to be missing. This is even though the books were the same age, so the same amount of time to go missing, even though they were the same popularity, had the same checkout, non-delinquent checkout rates, more likely to be missing. So, which, which matches with what I'd heard kind of anecdotally um, from various people. This is why I got interested in testing it, because lots of people have told me, oh, you know, the ethics books always seem to be missing. So uh, I tested it, and that does seem to be the case. Um, but I should say that, that the remainder of the studies that I've done have not found ethicists to be worse, for the most part. The tendency of the data overall is for ethicists to behave about the same. Well, what are the other tests that you ran later? So here's another one. So we looked at the voting rates. So I'm assuming that voting is a civic duty. All right, that's contentious, of course. But uh, so I had a, in a separate study, I had a, a poll in which I asked various normative, that is moral uh, and uh, behavioral questions about uh, of professional philosophers and other professors. And there was something like 87%, 88% of them said that it's morally good to vote regularly in public elections. Okay. So I'm assuming that's true. So I'm looking at votes, voting rates as a measure of public uh, participation of doing one's democratic duty. So what we did was we looked at public records, not at self-report, public records of voter participation in five U.S. states where the public records were accessible uh, to researchers. And we matched the public names on the public records with uh, names and locations of professors in philosophy departments and other comparison departments in the same universities in those states. And what we found was that uh, ethicists and uh, non-ethicist philosophers and professors in departments other than philosophy all voted at about the same rate. So ethicists did not vote any more often. Mm -hmm. And this includes, we had a separate breakout of people specializing in political philosophy, as a, we consider that to be a subset of ethicists, specialists in political philosophy were no more likely to vote than professors in uh. other departments or than other professors. However, political science professors were more likely to vote. So it wasn't like it was just flat across the board. Political scientists were more likely to vote, but uh. ethicists and political philosophers were no more likely to vote. So that's mm. another study. Another study, we looked at email responsiveness. So we, I think, and Josh thinks, that there's professors have a duty, basically, to respond to emails from undergraduates. And, uh, you know, it's defeasible. There will be cases where you don't have to. But for the most part, if you get an email from an undergraduate, you either ought to respond to it or it's morally better to respond to it than to ignore it. So we sent emails that were designed to look as though they were from undergraduates to several hundred ethicists and non-ethicist philosophers and professors in other departments. Uh, and then we measured the rate at which these professors uh, responded to those emails. Now, in doing this, I should say, <laughs> just clarify, that the way that we set up the data coding is such that we don't know which professors individually responded to the emails. Right. So we don't draw any inferences about individuals. <laughs> and we did put this through institutional review board to make sure uh, that they agreed with us that it was not uh, um, a morally problematic intervention <laughs> or experiment. All right. We're not drawing conclusions about individuals, but we are. We did look at the email responsiveness, and the 
And again, all the groups, all three groups, ethicists, non-ethicists, philosophers, and other professors all responded to those emails at the same rate. The, yeah. They responded basically about 60% of the emails that we sent. Now, some of those had received the survey that I briefly mentioned before. And one of the questions on the survey was about what percentage of student emails do you respond to? About half of the participants said they respond to 100% of student emails. <laughs> And I think it was about 90% claimed to respond to at least 90% of student emails, right? But the, at least for these emails, we didn't get percentages anywhere near that high. And there was virtually no correlation whatsoever between people's self-reported rate of responsiveness and their likelihood of responding to the emails that we had sent. Huh. I think, I think self-reported rate of responsiveness explained 1% of the variance of actual responsiveness. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, we had a question too. Also, we asked them about uh, a moral question about um, whether it's let's see whether it's bad not consistently to respond to student emails. And there was no statistically detectable relationship between the normative view of the various professors in any of the groups, including the ethicists, and their actual rate of responsiveness. What people whether people said it was bad or not bad or how bad they said it was on a scale from you know 1 to 9 did not correlate with whether they actually responded although for ethicists it correlated with their self reports of responsiveness right so if they said it was bad then they tended to say they were they yeah. tended to give higher estimates of their own responsiveness yeah <laughs> <laughs> but those estimates did not predict actual responsiveness mm. so that's another study well, I've got tons. <laughs> Another one. Let me just mention one more yeah. cool one. Um, so the same questionnaire study, we asked attitudes about eating the meat of mammals, such as beef and pork. Right. Right. We didn't want to ask about vegetarianism in general because people break down about whether it's okay to eat chickens and fish and stuff like that. Right. So it's a little bit confusing. But we thought if you know, if you're any sort of vegetarian, you ought to think it's morally bad to eat the meat of mammals, such as beef right. and pork. So that's what we asked. And then we later in the questionnaire asked. At your last evening meal, did you, not including snacks, did you eat the meat of a mammal, such as beef and pork? Beef or pork. And uh, what we found was on the normative question, there was a huge difference. The ethicists, I think it was, so I don't have the numbers right to hand, so these are, these are approximate. I think 60%, it was definitely a majority, I think it was 60% of ethicists put it on the morally bad side of the scale yeah. to eat, regularly eat the meat of mammal. I think it was 45% of the non-ethicist philosophers who said it was morally bad, and it was like 19% of the non-philosophers. So there's this huge difference, yeah. all the way from a majority position for the ethicists to a small minority for the non-philosophers. But then if we asked, but then in the question where we asked about, did you eat the meat of mammal at your last evening meal, there was no statistical difference between the groups. Between all three groups, there was no difference. No difference. Oh. So the the power we have to detect small statistical differences was not sufficient to detect small statistical differences. What we got, I think, was, as you might expect from the normative response, the non-philosophers did report the highest rate of having eaten the meat of a mammal at the previous evening meal. I think it was mm -hmm. like 45%. And then ethicists were actually in the second group, somewhere in the high 30s. And non-ethicist philosophers were in the third group, maybe in the mid-30s, right? So ethicists weren't even in the lowest group, and there was no statistically detectable difference. But there might have been some real subtle difference 
right? Maybe that slightly higher number for the non-assessed philosophers reflects some real tendency for, for sorry, for the non-philosophers sex reflects some real tendency for them to eat. I mean, we can't really pull that apart. But to the extent that there was any difference in behavior, in, and this is even just self-reported behavior, not measured behavior, you might expect self-reports to be slightly inaccurate in, yeah. a, in a kind of in a self-protecting way, right? But to the extent there was any difference in behavior, it was subtle, right, compared to this huge difference in normative attitude. Hmm. Well, this is all very depressing, but I have a theory I'm going to throw <laughs> out there and see what you okay, think. Okay, sure. Um, how about this? What if philosophical reflection on morality doesn't make much difference for behavior, but religious reflection on morality does make a difference. I'm thinking in particular of that one study that I've read at least about how the, if you have people reflect on the Ten Commandments or even just read them, then they're less likely to cheat on a particular test. <laughs> so there you go. Particular study. Um, so I have done a bit of a, re a review of the literature on the relationship between religiosity and moral behavior. It's pretty contentious. But the way that I interpret the literature is that there's basically no relationship between religiosity and moral behavior. So if you look at a wide range of studies, you'll see some studies that show a weak relationship and some that show no relationship between either self-professed religiosity or um, measured re religiosity, measured, say, by, you know, how likely is that, how often does that person go to church? And the weak relationship studies seem to me generally, and also the no relationship studies, <laughs> seem to me generally to be somewhat interpretively problematic because you can't really do randomized assigned trials. Or you can't randomly say, okay, you be religious, you be irreligious, and then measure their moral behavior down the road. Yeah. Right? The things that lead people to be religious or to profess religiosity are entangled with, confounded with variables that will affect moral behavior. Right. So, being religious, right, uh, might correlate. Just for example, might correlate with being, say, uh, tending to be a conformist rather than a nonconformist. Right. right. And being a conformist versus a nonconformist might correlate with being likely or unlikely to break laws, which might be the tentative variable of some particular study, right? Right. So then it might be the conformity or nonconformity as a character trait that is explaining both the religiosity or professed religiosity and the tendency not to break laws rather than the religiosity being directly uh, explanatory. Yeah. Also, another thing that I think I've noticed in the literature is that the one, the studies that tend to find the best relationship between religiosity and moral behavior tend to be relatively smaller studies, and they're often run by people who are affiliated with religious institutions, which raises questions about, you know, experimenter bias. I did find two studies that seemed to me at least a, a little more effective at trying to get at causality, and uh, I guess I don't think we have time to really get into the details of those studies, although I do explain them briefly on my on my blog at the Splintered Mind. Okay. But those uh those studies actually show the reverse of the predicted effect. So one study that looked retrospectively at uh the religiosity of sex offenders found a positive correlation between uh religiosity and uh the severity of sex offenses. 
so, so based on all that, I'm inclined to think that there's relatively little relationship or at least direct relationship between religiosity and moral behavior. But the, the question is really tangled and confused. I think, um, you know, it's wide open. There would be, it would be really an interesting opportunity to try to do some, uh, some rigorous research on this. I think, uh, it's an open question. Well, Eric, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's fun, fun. In the next episode, I'll be interviewing historian Richard Carrier about historical method and Jesus of Nazareth. So stay tuned for more Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot.